You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. And uh, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you in this way. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at verses 9 to 15. We are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Today we get to look at, uh, well, one of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible for sure. For sure. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer as it's known. And as you're flipping there, here's a a quote from Tim Keller. He has a book called Prayer. It's been a real blessing to me. And this, this is the quote from Tim Keller. He says, The Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Jesus Christ gave it to us as the key to unlock all the riches of prayer. And yet, it is an untapped resource, partially because it is so very familiar. Like, think about that. The words that we're about to look at are probably the most spoken words across the world for all of history. Like, that is, that's amazing, and yet... I agree with with Tim Keller that for so many of us, this is like an untapped resource. Some of us grew up, and we grew up saying the Lord's Prayer so frequently, over and over again, morning, evening, night, reading it in church every single week, and what's happened to us is it's kind of become meaningless white noise. Like, we don't really know what we're saying. Some of us have overreacted to that, and we have neglected the Lord's Prayer. We do not read it. We do not recite it. There's, it's not part of our, our daily liturgy or our weekly or monthly time with the Lord. Uh, if you're like me, you know, I was raised a good Baptist boy, and I had this thing memorized in the KJV. Uh, but I have also uh, failed to use this and seen this for the beauty that it is. And so my prayer for us right now is that we would see the Lord's Prayer and all of its beauty— and in all of its utility, this is a massive deal for us. It's a massive opportunity. And I want us to be like the disciples in Luke chapter 11 who come to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. Like teach us, I want to know how to pray. I want to want to pray. I want us to believe so much in prayer that when we start to pray, that we vividly picture coming into the throne room of grace, grabbing hold of the garment of Jesus and saying, I want more of you. I want more of your love. I want more of your power and your nearness. This is what is available to us in prayer. And the Lord's prayer is a doorway that leads us into a house with many rooms of prayer. So last week, Pastor Robbie, he started uh, his sermon with a quote from E.M. Bounds. And so here's one more for good measure. It says this, says, Prayer is a wonderful power placed by Almighty God in the hands of his saints which may be used to accomplish great purposes and to achieve unusual results. If any man will know the virtue of prayer, if he will know what it will do, let him pray. And then I love this last line. Let him put prayer to the test. Let us right now put prayer to the test. That is what I'm asking. This is what Jesus's invitation to us is. So our sermon is this, pray then like this. Let us right now put prayer to the test. And so I know we just sat down, but we're going to do something that's been modeled throughout church history. We're going to stand and we're going to read out loud the Lord's prayer right now. So let's stand up 
It's going to be on the screen for us, and this is our text, and this is a prayer. And so even just, even as we read this, let our hearts understand what we're reading. So let's read this out loud together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you notice, the ending there is in brackets. We're going to get to that. But this is our text today. And as I said before, this is a a, a bit of a mini-series on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, uh, Pastor Robbie walked us through four critical lessons on prayer he led us through some things that we need to avoid and some things that we need to pursue. And at the end of his message, he said, well, then what should I pray? And he said, you'll have to come back next week and you're here. And so now we get to find out what Jesus has to say about prayer. This text that we have is paralleled in Luke chapter 11. Uh, it's slightly different. We know that Jesus uh, traveled and he gave many sermons at many different times. And it's possible that Luke and Matthew are recording different times where Jesus shared this prayer. But we look at Matthew's account today. So this prayer is traditionally broken into six sections. Three of them are instructed with the word your and their upward petitions to the Lord. And then there's three that are petitions from us. So we see three yours and three us's. We're going to squish two of them together and that leads us to have five imperatives on prayer. Five directives, five uh, commands, five imperatives on prayer and that's our outline today. And so our first one, point number one, is this, pray with God's name. Pray with God's name. Look again at verse nine. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So notice, pray then like this. It doesn't say, recite this prayer exactly like this for all of eternity. So the Lord's prayer was intended to be more than a scripted prayer for the church. Now, We just read this out loud as a church. When we do this and our hearts are in this, this is a wonderful use of the Lord's Prayer. But it is meant to be so much more than that because we have to understand the danger of becoming so familiarized with something that our hearts become detached from it that we don't actually mean the words that are coming out of our mouth as we zone out and go on autopilot when we read the the Lord's Prayer. Remember Jesus, he's correcting something. He's addressing those who are heaping up empty phrases That's not what he wants. And so for many of us, the Lord's prayer has turned into this, this type of empty phrases. So the fuller intent is the Lord's prayer provides us with a framework or a model or a paradigm of how we ought to pray. And the first part, the first instruction is that we are to pray with God's name and about God's name. Our Father in heaven. Our Father. Like, Reflecting on this this week, I, I really believe, like, I, I feel like I could preach a whole sermon on just our Father. It's a powerful beginning. It's, it's so crucial. You see, this would have been contrary to the Jewish understanding of how they were supposed to pray. When they prayed, they, they had attribute upon attribute, name upon name, that was meant to heighten their sense of reverence and emphasize the transcendence of God. Like, think about this. The Jews couldn't even say the name Yahweh because it was so reverent. 
And now Jesus begins his prayer and he says, our father, Jesus is doing something new. This is something new. They wouldn't have addressed God as father in their normal prayer life. But, but listen, what a picture of intimacy. Like what a picture of love and affection. And even in the first phrase, our father in heaven, like this juxtaposition we have, our father, this, this sense of imminence and nearness and relationship in heaven. We have this transcendent beauty, majestic God, all in one phrase, our father in heaven. It's beautiful. But we're meant to approach God in our prayer life as father. Like this changes everything. And I was thinking about this this week, like what would be a fitting illustration for us to really understand this dynamic. And I just, I thought about, we're going to do a little mental exercise. I need you to use your imaginations, okay? I want you to picture a king in a castle and that there's a little girl who's going to speak to the king. And so she puts on her finest clothes and she, she, you know, walks up to this massive medieval castle. She walks up the long stairway and then she sees these, these big wooden doors that she can't open on her own. And so the, the guards slowly open the doors and then this, there's the throne room. And then there's this long hallway that leads up to a king who's sitting on his throne and he's got his crown and he's got his robes. And the, the girl slowly and cautiously puts one foot in front of the other as she walks up to address the king. And then she finally works her way up to the end of the hallway and she bows in reverence. And then how does she address the king? She says, your majesty. It's a picture of reverence. And even if she does muster up the courage to have a request, it is timid and it is uncertain. Now, how does this change if the little girl is the daughter of the king, right? So these big doors open again, and, but when she sees the throne room, when she enters, she sees the king, but it's her dad. And so she takes off running down the aisle and the king sees his daughter and he gets up off the throne and he comes and he scoops her up into his arms and she says, father, daddy, and there's no, you know, there's no awkwardness. There's no fear in this room. There is so much boldness. There is a sense of like something familiar. There is love. There is intimacy. She's not hesitating in her request because it's her dad. Maybe she says, hey, like, come play with me or come, let's eat together. There is something so beautiful about this. But listen, the relationship changes the encounter. The relationship changes the encounter. And so it is with us. We are supposed to approach God as father. We are children of God. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you are saved, then listen, you call him father. And for many of us, we have not realized the power of prayer because we are stuck without addressing the real relationship that we have. And so let this just wash over you this morning. I'm going to read some things about what it means for us to address God as Father. Here's just a couple. When we address God as Father, we're reminded that your heavenly Father has adopted you into his family because of the finished work of Jesus, whom he sent on your behalf to rescue you and save you from your sins. The relationship isn't just kind of mended. Your family he sees you as a son or a daughter. Your father in heaven is gentle and tender-hearted toward you. 
He isn't cold. He isn't annoyed. He isn't indifferent at your requests. He loves you. Hear this. Your father loves you with the same love that he has for his son, Jesus. Like, that should make our heads spin. Like, he loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus. Your father is full of mercy and forgiveness. Your father is preparing a place for you in heaven where we will spend all of eternity with him. Your father wants to hear from you. He wants to spend time with you. Your father loves you. Your father wants to help you. Like, this is the dynamic. The relationship changes everything. And so it's no wonder in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, let us then with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace, listen, to help in our time of need. This is the disposition of God towards his children. He loves you. There is mercy and grace for you and for me in our time of need. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Even just as we've like just done this, right? Like, I don't know about you, but my heart begins to worship. There's a sense of love and affection being stirred in my heart towards my heavenly Father. This is the place we begin in adoration. The first directive is to pray with a worshipful heart to him. We're saying, hallowed be your name. We're asking for his name to be seen as holy and set apart. His name uh, is another way of saying his whole character. It's who he is. And so when we say, hallowed be your name, another way we could say this is, Father, I love you or I worship you because of who you are. I love all of you. And I worship you for who you are. And notice, like as we begin, like this isn't about us yet. We're not rushing in with a list of requests. We're going to get there. But we begin with a place of adoration. We want everyone to see God for who he is and to treat him and his name as holy. We want to have a, a clearer picture in our hearts. We want to have more understanding of who he is to see his goodness, his mercy, his love, and all of the things that make him so wonderful. Hallowed be your name. So each of these imperatives or directives on prayer. I want these to be wonderfully practical. And so with each one, there's going to be two questions that lead us to a place of reflection that you can just take this home and you can sit down this week, go through the Lord's prayer and pray through it yourself. So here's the first two questions of our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Question number one, what attributes of God are you thankful for? That's pretty simple. Question number two, how has your heavenly father shown himself to be good to you? Just take like three minutes this week. Sit down and just journal through the things that you love about your heavenly father. What I want us to see just right from the get-go, this is not a script. It's a doorway. It's a portal into a type of prayer that we likely do not do enough we begin with a place of adoration and love for your heavenly father, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That leads us to prayer number two. Pray for God's kingdom and will. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is something that's been um, a repeated theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We understand that there is a, an eschatological, there's a future element involved in the kingdom and there's also a here and now element. 
You know, the kingdom of God was inaugurated when Jesus came and, you know, began his earthly ministry. So the kingdom of God is here in a sense, but not fully and not perfectly yet. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are asking for his rule and reign to be taking effect in our present reality. Like we want the rule and reign of God to be seen and acknowledged here right now on earth. Now there's a narrow sense to this as well, that we in our hearts would submit to God's kingdom and rule, meaning that we would live in such a way that follows the law of God that we'd be good citizens of the kingdom, that we would love God and love neighbor the way that we're supposed to. But there's also a broader sense where we are seeking God's kingdom to come and deal with the evil and wickedness in our world that we cannot fix. I don't know about you, um, but it takes me like 30 seconds when I turn on the news and all I see, the word that I, that I have when I just watch what's taking place is brokenness. Everywhere you look, it's broken. Even just do a survey of the people in your life, the family members, your loved ones who have heard the good news of Jesus, who have not accepted that. They, they, they are still living outside of, of his kingdom and they are destined to spend eternity apart from God. Like it, it's, it's broken. You think about the, uh, the wars taking place and just the, the thousands of lives that have been lost. It's broken. You think about the statistics on the discarding of human life through abortion. It's just thousands and thousands of lives being lost. It's broken. You think of the, the statistics of girls being sold into slavery, being trafficked, like just the heartache that's involved, like it's just, it's, it's all, it's broken. It's broken. There's something within us that just cries, like this isn't how it's supposed to be. This world that was created good has been so marred by the effects of sin that everywhere we look, we see broken. And there's something that just, we, we long to see a king come and fix the problem. And guess what? God will come. Jesus Christ will return and he will bring about perfect justice and he will establish righteousness once and for all and it will be beautiful. But here and now, we pray. We pray. We do not just wait for the return of Christ. There is to be an urgency in our faith to believe that God is bigger than our problems that we see. He's bigger and he can do something about it. That there would be a restraining impact upon the sin and evil of this world as a result of the prayer of his saints. Like when we pray, something happens. There's a restraining impact upon this world. And so yes, we pray, your kingdom come. Like God can do something about this. He can mend what is broken. He can save the sinner. He can rescue those who are in bondage. He can do something. And so as we don't just like throw our hands up, we pray with urgency, God, let your kingdom come here and now. I want to see your ways prevail. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom and his will, they're so closely related. God's will, um, that topic is, is so exhausted. So many people saying, what, like, what is God's will? And there's many different aspects to it, but two that we're going to focus on right now is the first is this, it's called God's revealed will or his perceptive will. And this refers to the moral norms for governing life that God has set forth in his word. 
That's from John Feinberg. It's the moral norm. So God's will is what he's told us in his book. So when God says, be holy for I am holy, his will is that we would be holy, that we would walk in obedience. It's not a mystery. He's told us what his will is according to his word. That is his revealed will. The second sense is God's hidden or decretive will, which is God's sovereign choice by which he decides whatever happens. So when we say God is sovereign, we mean that God brings about his will and desires and purposes in all of life all the time. It's the outworking of his will. And I believe both of these are in view when we reference his will, and both of these are meant to be prayed through. The first is meant to be prayed when we say, God, would you help me live obediently to your word? Would you help me fulfill your will as I walk in your ways in a way that pleases you? God, let your will be done in my life. The second sense is also relevant because what we are saying is, whatever you bring about, would I put down my plans and would I pick up yours? There's a dying to self that's involved. There's a sense of surrender. It's saying, I'm good with whatever you have for me. Warren Wearsby says, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. We aren't asking for our will. There's a dying to self. There's a crucifying of our will taking place. And listen, sometimes things happen that are very, very hard. There's sickness. There's trials. There's temptations, there's burdens that we're carrying that are so heavy. And we need to understand that God uses sin. He uses suffering. He uses brokenness to accomplish his purposes on earth. When we pray for God's will to be done, we're asking for him to bring his desires about in our life and for us to come into alignment with them. This is a massive spiritual principle for us a quote on the screen from Martin Luther. This is a prayer that he prayed in response to this verse right here. He says this, grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity, and to recognize that in this your divine will is crucifying our will. Um, I'm not super fired up to pray that because I understand what that might mean. Like, grant us grace to bear willingly whatever you have for me that is of great discomfort. But this is so good and this is so right. Why? Because we understand that his ways are just, they're not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And often, far too often, he has planned something that I would never choose for myself because he has a plan and a purpose that I do not understand, but that it is my job to come into alignment with. That is, what is, that, is, that is what we are saying in this moment. And if you think that this is out of step biblically, I want to draw our attention to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, leading up to his betrayal and arrest and the beating that he would take before he went to the cross. And what was he doing? He was praying. He was praying to his heavenly Father, and he was praying with agony, drops of blood coming down from his sweat. And he was crying out. And what, was it, what did he say? He said, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, 
but yours be done. And it was the will of God that Jesus would go to the cross on our behalf. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So hear me, if it is true for Jesus, it is certainly true for you and me. That we need to surrender ourselves to the will of God. But listen, I'm not pretending that this is easy and I'm not pretending that this is light. The brokenness that is in your life, that is in my life, can be just, it can feel like it's too much to bear. And there is a day coming where Jesus Christ, he will look us in the eye, he will wipe away every single tear. And hear this, he will see, we will see that every ounce of pain, every ounce of suffering, every ounce of discomfort was used in the sovereign hand of a loving God to bring about our good and his glory. Like that is coming. And listen, it is good for us to long for heaven now. And so yes, here on earth as it is in heaven, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here and now on earth as it is in heaven. So how can we take this directive and apply it? What are the questions here? Question number one, where is my life out of alignment with God's kingdom and will? Where is my life out of step? Where am I walking in disobedience? Number two, what areas of brokenness in our world are we longing to see changed for God's glory? As we spend time this week reflecting on this, turn this into prayer. So when we say, let your kingdom come, man, there's, there's, there's more at stake here when our heart is in it in that way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This leads us to point number three. Pray for provision. Pray for provision. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. So two directives. The first ones that we looked at are focused primarily on God and his involvement in the world. And now we see the Lord's prayer turns and we enter into a section on petitions from us. But notice the order. By the time we even get to the petitions, we have reflected on our heavenly father in adoration. We've asked for his kingdom to come through his rule and reign. We've sought to be in alignment with his will for us in the world. And then we turn to our personal needs. And there's something corrective about this process that by the time we get to our list, our lists sometimes look a little different because he has reoriented our desires. He's reoriented our needs and some of the things that we thought were needs weren't. Even this week, I was, I was sensing that there's things that I was really wanting to see happen. And by the time I walked through this and got to I'm like, well, my list has changed. That's what the Lord does in this. There's something that happens when we fix our eyes on God before we obsess inwardly. But we do have needs. And guess what? Your heavenly father wants to hear them from you. That's awesome. D.A. Carson says we are praying for daily needs, not daily greeds. And that's true. And that would have hit, like this whole section would have hit differently for the audience that Jesus was speaking to. D.A. Carson goes on to say, like if, if the, the people of, of Jesus' day when he was speaking, if they would have missed even like a couple days of work because of sickness or health, like this could have spelled disaster for them and their family. There was such a reliance day to day of being hand to mouth that meant that this prayer was very literal. Give us this day our daily bread. Like I am seeking the Lord for today's needs. And there's something like we're kind of insulated from that. Like this does exist at places in our world, but we are largely insulated from these types of day-to-day pressures. 
In fact, my worry for us is that many of us have actually stopped seeing the Lord as our daily provider, as Jehovah Jireh, because we think we got it. Like, we go to work. We fill the fridge. We pay for vacation. We have socialized medicine. We, 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 we. Like, we are guilty of thinking that we are self-sufficient. And we fail to understand that every single thing that we have, every food in our fridge, the phones that we have, the clothes on our backs, all of it is a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. He is provider for us. He is not just the granter of wishes. He is our day-to-day provider. And there's something so good about us coming before him and seeking the Lord for the things that we need and thanking him for the needs that he has met. Daily bread also could be used to summarize all of the needs that we have day to day. We need jobs. We need health. We need economy that's functional. We need transportation. We need the Lord to provide our daily bread. Many of us in this room right now, we have daily bread. We have daily needs that we are currently trusting the Lord for. Like there's something in your heart that you need. You know it is a need. And we need to bring it before the Lord. Some of us in this room have so much and some have so little. How might the Lord even use this church to meet the needs of people, of brothers and sisters in Christ? How that works, I don't really know the Lord does, but what I'm calling us to, what this word from God is telling us is to come to him in neediness, in dependence, in faith, knowing he is the one who meets our needs. So how can we apply this? This one's easy. What needs are you trusting God for? Maybe it is food. Maybe there's a bill that you have in the mail and it's like, I have no idea where that's coming from. Maybe it's employment. Maybe it's health. What needs are you trusting for? We don't need to feel guilty. We, we get to come before our Father. And he knows what we need before we even ask. But he loves for us to ask. That he might meet that. That leads us to number four. Pray for forgiveness. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So Jesus introduces a new section on forgiveness, but notice it's linked with the word and, and forgive us our debts. Carson, again, he so beautifully says that that and is really important. It it, it says to us that there's something that we need as much as physical food and daily provision that has forgiveness and intimacy with the Father. Just as much as we need bread, we need daily bread from the Lord. We need to experience intimacy and connection with him. And so confession and repentance are an essential aspect of our faith. He uses the word debts as a reference to sin and the spiritual debt that we accumulate as we live our life day to day. And this, uh, as I was in this, this is such a good example of how mindless repetition is such a problem in this prayer. Like when we say, forgive us our debts, like, think about from our Heavenly Father's perspective. Like, if we have, have we thought about what we're seeking forgiveness for? Have we paused and had a moment of introspection and said, Lord, what am, I, what am I guilty of? What are the sins that I have committed that have offended my Heavenly Father? We can't just heap up an empty phrase of, Father, forgive us, if we have not done the time to look inwardly, slowing down in our prayer and taking the time and the element of confession seriously will change our prayers and it will change the way we approach the Lord. You think we begin with a high view of God and when we start in a place of recognizing his holiness, often that shines light on our sin 
and we see the corruption, we see the evil within us, and we can bring that to the Lord because confession leads us to a deeper intimacy with the Lord. You've heard this metaphor so many times in this church, but I think it's so good when we think about our spiritual life as a pipe or a drain that sin begins to clog. The more that we sin, the more that goes unconfessed, that that flow of water, the rushing waters of intimacy with the Holy Spirit begin to be hindered because of the sin that is clogging up. We struggle to hear from God and when we open his word, our prayers feel dry and lifeless. We don't feel that sense of relational intimacy that we used to feel because sin has clogged, sin has grieved the Holy Spirit. And so how powerful of an exercise it is to come before our our heavenly father and to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me that we would truly have a posture of brokenness, of repentance, as we become aware of the things that we have done that have grieved the heart of God. And guess what happens when we do that? The sin that is clogging gives way and then the waters, the rushing waters of intimacy begin to fill our life as we see and experience the grace of God and forgiveness that is available to you every single day. When we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So now we shift, we see that there is a reciprocal relationship between God's forgiveness and our forgiveness of others. God's forgiveness is not conditional to us, but it is reciprocal. And so let's look down on verse 14 and 15 at the end. It says, verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Um, when we take those verses on their face, like they're, they're troubling verses because we know the state of our own heart. We know how hard it is to forgive. Um, in the summer, I preached a sermon on Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it's such a, a good fitting parallel text to this. And the point of that passage and the point of this passage is, is that those who have been forgiven in Christ, forgive. The forgiven, Forgive because we understand the size of the debt that has been forgiven on our behalf. How can we not turn and forgive those who have wronged us? That's exactly what's in view here. And with this passage in particular, there's a warning that's saying, if your life is not bearing fruit of forgiveness and grace, then one should question if you have truly experienced the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Because those who have experienced the forgiveness of grace have a spiritual duty, a spiritual obligation, a spiritual reflex of forgiveness. How can we expect God to forgive us if we do not have a heart of forgiveness to others? Again, just as I said in in the summer, and I'm saying right now, forgiveness is hard. There are real wrongs, there are real things that people have done to us that we struggle to forgive, but what, instead of focusing on the size of what has been done to us, we focus on the size of what has been forgiven for us. The forgiven must forgive. And so what this prayer is leading us to do is confess our sin before the Father and ask for a work of the Spirit in our hearts that we might turn and reciprocate to others. 
And so here's two questions for us as we apply this. Question one, what are the wrongs I have committed? What are the sins in my life that need to be confessed and forgiven? You get specific in your time with the Lord. Number two, what wrongs have been done to me that I need to forgive? Notice it says we forgive the debtor, not the debt. We're forgiving people, not just incidences. That, that, that sat with me a little bit this week. Like We're not just overlooking an offense. We are forgiving the person because we as people have been forgiven by God. Lastly, number five, we pray for protection. Verse 13 says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the final petition for us is for spiritual protection. This flows so naturally out of repentance because the heart that is repentant desires not to sin. And so we need a spiritual protection that keeps us, that gives us victory over temptation and the spiritual attacks of evil. Now, this passage is not saying that our Father would ever tempt us. We know from from James chapter 1, God does not ever tempt his children with evil. So he does not tempt us. He does allow us to go through trials and testing that refine us, but he does not tempt us with evil. And so what we're actually praying here is this, Lord, please don't let us give in to the temptations that we face. Would you help us have victory in our sin and the temp- against our sin and the temptations that we face? And it goes further and says, deliver us from evil or the evil one. You see, that last line is acknowledging that that it's not just our own flesh that we're fighting against. That we don't wrestle simply against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Satan and his entire demonic realm exists. Like, like this is real. And the more that we recognize the spiritual environment in which we live, that the spiritual forces of evil are actually coming against followers of Christ in a real way, it leads us to say, I need help. Like, I can't do this on my own. I can't fight sin in my own strength. And so in Ephesians, it says we put on the whole armor of God. And yes, but we need more than that. We don't just need armor. We need prayer and we need a deliverer. We need someone who will deliver us from evil. So what we're asking is when we say this, we're saying, Lord, would you put your proverbial arms around your children and say, not today. You will not experience defeat today that you will thwart the plans of the devil and you will protect your children from the evil one. That is what we're praying, that we might experience victory. So what do we do when we apply this? What are the two questions we need to ask with this? These are really practical. Number one, when and where am I prone to give in to temptation? You can even ask, what is the besetting sin that I keep struggling with? When and where does that happen? Ask the Lord for help in that. Number two, what are some verses that can help me resist the evil one? We got two weapons. We got prayer and the word. So we need to arm ourselves for battle. We need to know the word. We need to know how to use our sword of the spirit. So what are some verses that we can take to heart that when we're encountered with evil that we can recite and we can fight temptation the way Jesus did? That's how we can apply this in our life, even this week. Oh Lord, deliver us from evil. So, as I said in the beginning, if you're like me, you grew up. Uh, I knew the King James Version, which had an ending, and if you look down, that ending seems to be missing. 
So what's up with that? What's the deal? Where, where is the uh, traditional ending? Well, the traditional ending that we read says, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you have an ESV, which is what we use, it has a footnote likely explaining that this ending was likely added later and it's not recorded in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. So what does that mean? What, like, what do we do with that? Well, we should not think of the ending as scripture. But it may not be scripture, but it's not theologically wrong. And so what I think is helpful is for us to view this ending as like a creedal affirmation written by the church in response to the Lord's prayer. Like it's a beautiful ending, right? Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever, amen. And what it does is it, Daniel Henderson said this in the, the clip we showed at prayer meeting, it brings us back where we started to a place of adoration. Yours is the kingdom. That's an amazing way for us to end as we understand the majesty and the splendor of our heavenly father. It is not scripture, but what a fitting way for us to end responding to the Lord's prayer to get us back to a place of love and adoration. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with this message on the Lord's Prayer? I have two words for us. Practice and privilege. Practice and privilege. My prayer, simply put, is that you would want to pray. That the, the, the fire of prayer in your heart has been stoked. That logs have been thrown in. That, that we would want to pray. That we would put this into practice. Even this, today, I woke up, I went downstairs, and I start, I open up my Bible, and I start walking through, just praying through the Lord's Prayer with these questions in mind, like take this and use this. The utility of the Lord's Prayer in the Christian life is a gift for you. It's a gift for me that we might put this into practice. Number two, privilege. I, uh, I hope, man, as, as we've been reflecting on our Heavenly Father, who loves to meet your needs, that you would be struck by what a privilege it is to pray. Just to think that the God of the universe who sustains all things, who spoke and life came to be, calls you his children, and he invites you to speak to him anywhere, anytime. Bring your request to him. What a privilege it is to pray. And so we sang this last verse. This is our last uh, slide for us, and it says this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege what a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. This describes so many of us. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Would we see the privilege it is to approach our heavenly father in prayer? And as E.M. Bounds said, would we put prayer to the test? With that, let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I pray that is ringing with fresh meaning right now as we just say that, that we understand you are our heavenly Father who loves his children, who loves to hear us cry out to you. Lord, that you would be our source of provision, that your kingdom and your will would come and reign. Lord, that you would deliver us from temptation. Lord, you are so good to your children. And so it is fitting to cry out, to say yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. You deserve all of the worship from us today and every day. We love you so much and I pray, Holy Spirit, you would be working in the hearts of your people, lighting a fire in us to pray. We love you 
It's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Amen. You can stand and let's respond.